A few years back, and Don will remember this. He's like, oh no, what's he going to say? A few years back, we had a unique situation up under the platform here. And um, I was in here one day, and, and all of a sudden I hear, meow, meow. And, and we, we look, and, and obviously from where the sound's coming from, there's a cat under the platform. I don't know if you know, this is all hollow under here, and there's dirt and all kinds of things. And, and there's vents that go to the outside of the sanctuary, and one of those vents had been either kicked in or removed by kids or something, and this cat had gotten in under the sanctuary. So what do you do? And over the next few days, it became our mission to remove this cat from underneath the platform. We went through a Tuesday night reality check service, and every now and then, meow, meow. Because and, and, well, the first step is, let's put food outside the little door, and it'll jump out. The problem is the vents are, are elevated once you're inside. You, you jump through the vent and you go, boom. And, and then it's, it's much harder to get out. And this cat would not come out. And so throughout the next few days, we did all kinds of things. And finally, we had this trail of food. We had a, a trap door open in the back. And there's a hole in the, the, the floor. And we had this trail of food. And we staked it out for a cat. And, and and we saw it, and, and so one of us ran and got the door shut, and the cat runs back to the door and has nowhere to go, and then we have it cornered, which is always fun with a wild cat. But, um, and we, we finally got the cat outside. And I was thinking about that, because why would we go to all that effort to somehow remove this cat from under the platform? See, a few years before that, we didn't. And the animal, I don't know what it was. We've had several animals under there, haven't we, Don? The animal never made it out. And the weird thing is with animals, if they never make it out and don't have water and food, there tends to be an end result that is the same every time. And the animal died underneath the platform. And for the next few Sundays, few weeks, or, or more than that, there was this aroma in the sanctuary. And it was not the pastor <laughs> coming from under the platform. And I think eventually Don crawled under there and got the carcass or something like that. But it's amazing when we don't take care of things that are dead, they end up sticking with us. The smell, the aroma, the, the byproduct of this dead, rotting, stinking body stays with us. And you may be thinking that's a really odd way to start a sermon. On Sunday morning, we're talking about cats and dead cats. But as we come to our passage in Colossians, Paul now is, is beginning to talk about what kinds of dead things do we need to remove from our lives? What kinds of dead things can create a stench in our lives that keeps us from having a heavenly focus, from having heavenly ambitions? And he's dealing with that in a church that is struggling to remove the world from their worship. Remember the syncretism? They had mixed all the, the worldly forms of worship and they were being taught this with Christianity. And Paul is saying you, you can't mix dead, stinking things with live, renewed things. It doesn't work. And so in our passage today in Colossians chapter 3, we come to a, a, a series of lists where Paul is saying here's some dead things you need to get rid of. Here's some things that if you're going to be heavenly minded, if you're going to be focused on what God finds important, these are some things you've got to get rid of. So turn with me to Colossians 3. Colossians 3. The challenge of this section as you're turning there is up till now, most of Paul's instruction in Colossians has been fairly theological, fairly instructional. And, and that is, is really fun to dig into, to, to put our heads around, and, and we, can, we can learn. But now Paul starts to meddle. And, and he starts to talk about real life and things in real life, how theology gets put into practice. The facts have to become acts. And, and, and this is where conviction starts to really happen, because he starts to step on our toes. But we come here asking the Holy Spirit to step on our toes. Colossians chapter 3. And just to give us a sequence up till now, if you look back at Colossians 
It started, if with Christ you died. And Paul is using this imagery of, of being um, dying with Christ and being raised with Christ. And in verse 20, if with Christ you died to the world, to the elements of the world, to the world's attempts to make you clean, to the world's attempts to get rid of the dead stuff in your life, why do you still follow those things when you have died with Christ? And at the end of that passage in 23, the last phrase, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So this whole section is how do we clean up? How do we pursue holiness? How does Christ sanctify us? And so in verse three or chapter three, verse one, the passage we looked at last week, if then you have been raised with Christ, so you're, you're dead to the world because you died with Christ. Now you're raised with Christ. And the instruction was to seek heavenly things, make our ambition heavenly things, and to think heavenly, to think about heavenly things. So now we come to verse 5. And Paul is going to flip back now to what should be put to death because we have died with Christ. We're going to look at three different points out of this passage, 5 through 11 this morning. The first one in verses 5 through 7 is we're to kill and remove impurity at the root. Kill and remove impurity at the root. To take the sinful actions that we can find ourselves trapped in and and eliminate those sinful actions, but also eliminate the root, the motives, the thoughts, the heart that is behind those. So in verses 1-4, through set your heart on things above. 5-11 through says, okay, let's get rid of the dead things out of the heart. Read with me verses 5-7. through Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. And so Paul starts by dealing with the the issue of sexual purity. An issue that would have been prevalent at the church of Colossae as they were dealing with the cults and and many of the temple prostitutes that came with the cults, and a worldly system that that really elevated sexuality. And he says, no, not so with your walk with Christ. And so he begins to meddle with one of the big issues of the time, and I would argue one of the big issues of our time, as we struggle with the sexual images that come at us every day on TV or in billboards or or in, in music or wherever we walk. And so this isn't just something for the church at Colossae. This is instruction for us. And he starts in verse 5 by saying, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Make dead, literally is what that means. Make it dead. View it as dead. Get rid of it. Last week we asked the question, what can dead things do? Nothing other than rot. And so Paul is saying, Don't let it have any influence in your lives. Get rid of it completely. He's basing this on being, having died with Christ and the power of Christ. He's going to say that a little later in this passage. We saw it in in chapter two. And he's reminding them now that because they died with Christ, the power of the cross has already dealt with this list. The power of the cross has already given us the ability, the power to resist through the strength of the Holy Spirit. Not on our own. We we saw in chapter 2 what what our own methods of dealing with this is. It's of no value, he said. But he starts with the most important principle of all. We've died with Christ, and so we can put it to death. The work of the cross gives the power to conquer sin. Nothing else. Nothing else. And it's a reminder again this morning that if you have not repented and given your faith to Jesus Christ, if you have not come to the cross and allowed the cross to touch you, then your hope of dealing with sin and lists like this is gone. It is only through the power of Christ that we can see His power in our lives. And so Paul here is reminding us you've been saved You are new creatures. But now is the process of sanctification. Now is the process where you have have been justified and now every day you're becoming more Christ-like. Every day we're to be removing these things and to be sanctified. 
to completely eradicate them. When we read, put to death therefore what is earthly in you, the translation for what is earthly in you is unique. It, it, it translates in the Greek, your members that cause sin. And so we, we don't really want to put that in there. Put to death or make dead your members that cause sin. But this is, this is very much in line with what Jesus taught, isn't it? In Matthew 5 on the Sermon of the Mount, what did he say? If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. And, and these aren't saying, okay, let's go do physical surgery. What Jesus was saying, what Paul is saying, let's do surgery of the heart. Let's be so serious about sin that we are willing to find the cause and eliminate it at all costs. Jesus said in Matthew 5.29, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. We see this played out. I can just imagine Paul reflecting on the Sermon on the Mount and maybe reading Mark or reading Matthew as he wrote this and using Christ's words as the foundation of his instruction to this church. See, that first phrase, put to death, that death, therefore, what is earthly in you, it's about killing the inner cravings and desires, not tolerating them, not finding a way to coexist with them, but killing them and removing them and replacing them with Christ's influence. Some have said, well, this passage is really negative. We're, we're going to talk about all these things we shouldn't do. That's, that's a to-do list, Pastor Ron or a to-not-do to list. But I think even we have a little garden outside, out back, and it's this little circular garden. And when you go to plant a garden, when you, when you seek new growth, when you seek fruit, what do you do first? Any gardeners out there, what do you do first? Get the soil ready. What does that involve? What was that? Taking out the weeds. I don't know about any of you, but when, when our garden is unmaintained, we're talking stuff this high. And so, so imagine, what if I went out there and said, you know, we, the, the kids and Susie just planted green beans a little bit ago. What if they went out there and didn't do anything to the ground, left the weeds, left the stuff that's this high, that's thick enough that you could lose a small child in it. And, and what if they took the seeds and just threw it out on top of that? So we've planted green beans. We're going to have a crop. We have something to eat in a few weeks. Wouldn't work, right? It'd be ridiculous. You have to prepare the soil. You have to remove the weeds. And so next week in the passage, Paul is going to talk about what to put on, what to plant, but it has to start with let's get rid of the weeds. Let's get rid of the dead things. Turn with me to Romans 6. Romans 6, verse 11. It says, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. And Paul here is saying the same thing. Consider yourselves dead to sin. Remove it. It's gone and alive to God in Christ. In verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. When we let sin go unchecked, even if we're coexisting with it, it won't be satisfied until it reigns, until it controls. And so all of this, Paul is using to, to stress the importance of killing the things that are dead. Removing them. Getting rid of them. And then we come to the list. In the second half of verse 5, back in Colossians chapter 3, we come to the first list. And this list deals with impurity and how to remove impurity and sexual impurity and really what the roots of those things are. And when you come to a list in Scripture, and we have two of them this morning, when you come to these lists, it's always good to ask the question, what does this list have in common? At times it's just a random list or, or a checklist of things. But oftentimes in Scripture, the Holy Spirit has been very intentional in inspiration of putting a list together for a reason. And these two lists are no exception. We should come to verse 5 and verse 8 and say, okay, what, what do they have in common? What is God trying to, to communicate to us? 
And as we look at this list in verse 5, we're going to see a list that really moves from an outward manifestation, an outward sin, and moves backwards in five steps to the root causes of that and gets back to the the workings of the heart. It moves from, from something that we would sit here and say, oh, that's a big sin that we would never do. And we're like, oh, this list is safe. We can study this one. This one's not going to step on my toes. And it moves backwards successively to things that are harder and harder to avoid. And so Paul is using this very intentionally to prick the heart and to, and to go to the heart rather than the external. It's like Jesus was saying in the Sermon on the Mount, it's the heart that matters. It's the heart that matters. You say don't commit adultery. I say don't lust after a woman. It's the heart that matters. And that's what this list is about. Because if the heart doesn't change, do the actions change? No. Centuries ago in England, it was against the law to pickpocket. It still is. But back then, the penalty was they cut off your hand. So a little bit harsher than now. And the story goes of one man that was caught pickpocketing. His right hand was cut off. He was caught pickpocketing again. His left hand was cut off. They caught him again pickpocketing with his teeth. Why didn't the hand solve it? Because it was an issue of the heart. And that was never addressed. So let's look at this list in verse 5 and see what God is trying to say to us. The first word there, the first thing to avoid, to put to death, to completely eliminate, is sexual immorality. Sexual immorality, the Greek word there is porneia, and in this context it's specifically talking about any sex that occurs outside of the marital covenant. And sometimes, sometimes people say, well, where does it say that, that we should stay pure until marriage? This is one of the many places in the New Testament it does, because they saw that sexual immorality and it applied to prostitution, it applied to any, any sex before marriage. It applied to anything that was outside of the marital covenant. Any forbidden sexual acts. And so Paul starts there. Put that away. And, and it was something they would have struggled with, as we had mentioned, with, with the different religions. For us today, though, we'd be like, okay, I get that one. I know that one. I've heard that one. But then he starts to move backwards to, to root causes. The next word there, B, impurity. Impurity. Remove impurity or immorality. And this is a broader term than than the first one, sexual immorality. This includes more than just sexual activity outside of of marriage. This can include a lurid imagination. It can include having a foul mouth. Our speech that is, that is constantly drawn to sexual innuendos or sexual things. And so it includes sexual immorality, but it broadens it to say, you know what? Any sexual activity outside of marriage is forbidden. Anything from speech to touching to whatever that may be, anything is forbidden and needs to be put away. See, when we relax our standards, sometimes I'm asked the question, well, how far is okay before we're married? How far is okay? And when we start to ask that question and when we start to relax our standards, we are opening the door for abandoning our standards. And so Paul says, put away sexual immorality, put away impurity. But he doesn't stop there. The next word, see in your notes, is to put away passion. Passion. Sometimes this word is translated lust. And this now is moving from the external, where the first two words are more external activities and external ways of expressing those activities. This one deals very specifically with where are your thoughts? What's your thought life? Are you dwelling on sexual thoughts? Are we staying pure in our desires? Are we playing out scenarios in our mind? Sometimes I've heard the phrase, well, it's okay to look, but don't touch. And that's horrible. Because that is not what God's Word teaches. God's Word says, do everything you can to stay pure. 
men. This means we guard ourselves. We guard every look. We guard every thought. We find ways to make sure this does not take root in our lives. In Job 31.1, as, as Job is trying to process where he's at, he makes a great statement that I think should apply to any of us. I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. Simple phrase, right? But I love that word covenant. I chose, I decided, I made a covenant. Not I'm going to try not to. I made a covenant that I'm not going to look lustfully at a girl. That might mean things with your TV at home. Maybe not watching TV or maybe, shock of all shocks, giving your wife the remote control. Now I'm meddling. (laughs) And saying, if there is anything inappropriate, I don't even want to see it. I'm going to turn away. You take care of it. Are we serious about keeping even lust and passion out? Because these are roots. These are roots that all lead to sexual immorality and are part of sexual immorality. Moving on, and we're going to move through these lists pretty quickly because we have two lists. The next thing we see there is evil desire. Evil desire. And, And that takes a step back even from lust to say desiring anything that is not of God. To desiring things that are worldly. It includes sexual desires, but it also includes any other sinful and and evil longing. It also has the idea of striving for them. And Paul is saying here, okay, you, you may say, hey, I'm good on the sexual immorality stuff, but really, are you good on the heart of anything you desire? Whether it be money, whether it be lust, whether it be revenge or anything. Do we desire those things? Do we enjoy those things? A great test of that is what what kind of movies and shows do you enjoy? What do you enjoy watching? And that's a good sign into what your desires are. We talked about that a lot at our, our college camping trip this year, of compromise and, and, and how we, we let little things go because it's just a little thing. But every time we see sinful activity, every time we watch that, it should grieve us because it grieves our Lord and Savior. I urge us not to become desensitized to that, but to be painfully aware of the sin in this world and to be on guard. But then the fifth thing in that list, which is the, the, the place that Paul was heading and the place that we'd look at this and say, what? Why is that there? Covetousness. Some of your translations translate it greed, right? Well, okay, we, we've been talking about sexual purity and you're saying that the root of this is greed? But think about it. Think about what greed is. One author defined it as the haughty and ruthless belief that everything, including other persons, exists for one's own personal amusement and purposes. To, to, to distill that down, that everything and everyone exists so I can experience and have more. That's greed. When we get caught up in covetousness and greed, we'll do anything to get it. It's an unchecked hunger for physical pleasure. An unchecked hunger for more. A hunger that can never be satisfied. And Paul here comes to the idea of greed and greed in any area and says that is the root cause that will eventually lead to sexual immorality. Because if I can go down the path of greed then I can say, I deserve more, I want more, it doesn't matter what standards are there. Is that any different from saying that with another woman or another man? Oh no, those are completely different. No, they're not. Because the heart's the same. How does God describe it? And covetousness, which is, what's that word? Idolatry. Idolatry. 
He says greed, the heart at the root of this, the heart of impurity is idolatry. And it's not idolatry of, of worshiping sex or women or anything else that's in this world. It's idolatry of worshiping self. Of saying, I deserve what I want and I'm going to get it. And so when we think of issues of purity, of avoiding sexual sins, we come back to that no, this isn't just this one act. This isn't just this one giving in. This is a lifestyle of idolatry where I am replacing God with myself in my worship. I am more important than God is what we're saying. And man, we would say, I'd never say that to God. He'd strike me dead right here. But yet, that's what comes out of the heart. Remember the first verse, the first phrase. Put to death. Cut off completely. Cut off the supply. Do anything you can to remove this. And verse 6 gives us a reason why. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. He will judge sin. A righteous God must judge sin. A loving God must judge sin. And here Paul is is speaking in the future tense. And he's speaking actually of, of eternal judgment in hell and saying, if this is what your life is characterized, if you are worshiping self in any way and that is where your, your mode of operation is, the result is eternity in hell. It is destruction. And that should make us pause and ask the question, do I give in to my own desires? Do I greedily want to to fulfill my own desires? Why do I do what I'm doing? Verse 7, In these you too once walked when you were living in them. And Paul just gives a gentle reminder that this is closer to home than they think. You were there. Before you were saved, you were controlled by these, you were enslaved by these, you had no resources to fight these. But now, but now you're raised with Christ and we can deal with these by His power, by His strength. But I also think Paul is is digging a little bit here little bit of a prod to the heart by saying you once were in these you've been burnt by these you've been saved out of these why on earth would you want to go there again why on earth dabble with it why even start down this path with greed and evil desires it's like a child if they touch the the hot stove once They learn their lesson usually. But man, if it's 20 times, what's going on there? And Paul is saying, don't be burned again. You once were there. You were living in this, but you're not anymore. How do we begin to put off what needs to be put off, get rid of the smell? Paul starts with a very specific area that of purity. And he says, kill and remove impurity at its root. At its root. We go on and look at the next couple verses and we see Paul come up with another list and point number two there is we're to kill and remove sinful attitudes before they grow. To kill and remove sinful attitudes before they grow. The first list really is actions that come out of my my view of self, my elevation of self. The second list also deals with that, but it's specifically, it's specific dealing with how do I treat others? What are my relationships like? And Paul says we need to meddle there too. We need to deal with that. In verse 8, but now you must put them all away. And, and the word for putting them all away is that of, of removing dirty old clothes. And we're going to get to that again in, in verse 9. But taking off a jacket, taking off dirty clothes, disrobing, and setting it aside. Anyone watching the Olympics? I hear they've started. 
Um, watching swimming yesterday. I enjoy watching swimming. And it's amazing you don't see swimmers come and, and swim in a jacket. Right? They're, they're taking off everything they can. Their, their suits are streamlined. They have these cute little hats that they, no, I, I don't know, those are just odd. That, that they, they make sure that nothing will hinder them. They put it all away. And Paul here is saying, but you must put them all away. And he gives another list. And he's probably referring to both lists here, to anything that is dead and associated with our dead life. And he gives a list. Put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. And again, we have a list of five. And, and these are sins of anger. And, and what Paul is presenting here is a list that's in the reverse order from the first list. The first list went from the external the, and, and it went backwards to the heart, right? To greed. This list starts with the heart, anger, and says this is the path that anger can lead you down. If you don't forgive, if you don't check it, this is where it can go. And it ends with some very hurtful external things. So we could call this the path of anger. And Paul here begins to deal with sins that, that I think, again, we all struggle with. The social sins. Sometimes the sins that we're okay with. Because we can justify with righteous indignation. Well, I was wronged, so it's okay for me to go down this path. It's never okay. It's never okay. And we need to kill and remove these attitudes before they grow as early in the path as possible. Let's look at the five items. The first one is anger. Anger. And I probably don't need to define anger, but we'll try anyway. This is a, an internal seething at somebody, an, an, an internal reaction to, to being provoked or something that someone has done. Maybe trouble getting past something someone has done, and it just smolders inside. Festers is a word I like to use for this inside. And, and that's where Paul starts, okay? Someone's done something, you have an issue with someone, and now it begins to fester. And, and the, depending on where we, what we do with that, how it turns into attitudes, how it turns into actions, can take us down a path that is incredibly destructive. Second word there is wrath. Wrath. And wrath refers to an explosion of anger. Okay, so the first one is it's inside, it's a hurt that you're struggling with, you're dealing with, it's hard to get out of your mind. The second one now comes to one of the ways of dealing with that is, is sometimes hot anger, where we explode, where we've held it inside, and this little volcano, the pressure gets so much that we just, wah! That's wrath. A passionate anger, an outburst of anger. And it's the next step down the path, because if we don't deal with the offense, if we don't deal with the first step of anger, wrath comes next. Because it builds. Just like a sore that isn't dealt with in an infection, the infection grows. Put away anger, first step. Wrath, that's the next step it can lead to. Third step that it can lead to is malice. Malice, and it's important to see the association of these words. Malice is when it begins to expose itself in a mean-spirited attitude. A bitter attitude where we can barely look at that person, where our thoughts now start to, to think ill will of them and we get frustrated with them at every little thing. One of the definitions of the word is malignancy. Malignancy. Isn't that a great word for malice? Because just like a tumor, if it's malignant, it starts to infest and, and destroy everything around it and eventually will kill us. In the same way, malice begins to infest us and destroy all of our thoughts and take even good thoughts and corrupt them. It oozes out of us at every stage. That's Paul's third word. If we don't deal with anger, it can become wrath. If we don't deal with wrath, then it becomes what we would call cold anger and it becomes malice. A cold ill will to somebody. If you find yourself just picking apart everything someone does, 
if you find yourself just struggling to even see their face, this is probably where you're at. That's this definition. But this, the list doesn't stop there. Put away anger, wrath, malice. The next word is slander. Slander. And do you see how this is getting now more open? Just like a, a, a sore that's infected, eventually it'll, it starts to ooze out and, and comes out. Slander is then how that begins to come out. Slander is speaking ill of somebody. Even truthful things, speaking ill of somebody that will hurt them instead of help them. Comes from the word blasphemia. Same word as blasphemy. To defame, to revile, to disrespect someone with our speech. And isn't that true when we are so angry at someone and when it, when it, it builds and it builds and we think about it and we think about it, don't we find ourselves saying things, man, that we shouldn't say? Because we are so angry and it just spills out hurtful things, maybe even to other people. That's the fourth stop on the path of anger. Slander. And the fifth one is one again we look at and say, well, that's not so bad. Obscene talk, yeah, a lot of people struggle with that, but how do, what does that have to do with anger? Obscene talk from your mouth. Talk that's in poor taste derogatory talk, abusive language towards another. Well, what's the difference between that and slander? The difference here is that this goes beyond that situation. This goes beyond that person. And when we let anger rule in our lives, and when we walk down this path, the end result is that it affects every one of our relationships. It affects and contaminates all of our friendships because now it affects my speech. If I'm letting anger rule in my my heart, I can't help but be an incredibly negative and critical person. And everyone gets spewed on for that. That's what Paul means when he says, put away obscene talk out of your mouth. How do we talk? How do we speak? See, anger undealt with will never go away on its own. It will tear you up. It will destroy you. How do we get rid of it? How do we get rid of it? How do we live like we have died with Christ to worldly things, which includes things like revenge and getting even and dealing with this on our own, as, as Paul says in Romans 12, How do we die to that and be made alive in Christ, raised with Christ, thinking and making our aim like Christ is? And the the only answer to, to, to anger is that of forgiveness. Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. And if this list hits you, I would write those verses down and memorize them. Ephesians 4, 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath And anger, you see the reverse order there, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. So then he throws in the rest of the words. We get the whole anger path here. Put it away. And he doesn't say put it away if the person comes and apologizes. He doesn't say put it away because if, if certain circumstances happen, he just says put it away. It will destroy you. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And then the antidote, verse 32. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. Forgiving one another. And here's the raised with Christ part. As God in Christ forgave you. As God in Christ forgave you. How many of you have been forgiven by Christ? So does that create an obligation to learn to forgive others? Absolutely. Because when we hold on to things, we are mocking God's forgiveness in our own lives. We could go there all day and talk about forgiveness and talk about anger. 
But the challenge for us is to put this into practice. When we've been hurt, when we've been inappropriately wronged, can we still obey God's word and say, I'm going to be kind, tenderhearted, and forgive? Can we obey God's word in Colossians when he says, put them all away, put them off, disrobe, put those clothes aside, they have no place in your life. Verse 9 is sort of a bonus instruction. In verse 11, but it really does tie in to our attitude towards other people. Verse 9, do not lie to one another. Do not lie to one another. Coming back to our speech, how we treat each other. And I would almost put this on the sixth stop on the anger path because what happens is when we let anger reign, when we go down this path to, to wrath, to malice, to, to how we start to speak, to slander, one of the things that often happens when we dwell on it is we begin to dwell on, on facts that weren't actually even there. It becomes bigger than life. And so I think that that is very appropriate there that God says, do not lie to one another. Make sure we speak the truth. One politician said, a lie is an abomination unto the Lord and a very present help in trouble. Catch that? (laughs) Wait a minute. That's taking another verse. A lie is an abomination to the Lord and a very present help in trouble. We need to take care not to go down that path because it doesn't help. And it creates trouble. Kill and remove sinful attitudes before they grow. Last point for the, with the last couple of verses. Paul summarizes here. He gives the reason instead of the reason first. He gives it last in this text. So our third point is we need to change our clothes, change our perspective. Change your clothes, change your perspective. And I'm using some imagery from the text there. It's not that actually going home and changing our clothes puts on a new man, but that's the, the imagery that Paul is using starting in 9b. Seeing that you have put off the old self with his practices. Same word for taking off dirty, stinky clothes. I've been working outside before and, and just sweating and, or, or maybe playing softball and come in and, and Susie doesn't even want me to take those clothes to the, the hamper in our bedroom because of the aroma. She's like, they go straight to the washing machine. Straight, they, do not pass go, do not collect $200, whatever it is nowadays. But um, why? Because when we, when, we, when we continue to wear the dead, dirty, stinking clothes, there is no way to get past that smell. There is no way to get past the effect. And Paul here, that's the imagery he's using. Seeing that you have put off the old self and its practices. The worldliness, the the things that you did before Christ, the sinfulness, take it off. Remove it. Don't even allow it into your home. And verse 10, using the same word, and have put on the new self. Change your clothes. Put on, and, and, and when you put on clothes, they cover you. They cover your whole person. It affects you. Put on a, a knowledge that you are a new creation in Jesus Christ. It's changing our perspective. Instead of thinking of ourselves as worldly, and we've talked about this, understanding that God sees us as saints through the blood of Jesus Christ. It's a new perspective that we're to put on. Isn't it true that depending on what we wear, it can change our perspective? You go to a job interview in shorts and a t-shirt. It's different from if you go in a shirt and tie. And in fact, you, you act differently. You answer questions differently. I remember when Biola changed their dress code. Sorry for Biola people. I really liked their old dress code. And you may say that I'm old or whatever. But um, it used to be that on upper campus where all the classrooms were, you had to have long pants and a collared shirt. That was just part of the dress code. 
eventually they relaxed that and said, oh, just wear whatever you want, shorts, t-shirt, or whatever. There was a change in the attitude of students. I was teaching throughout that change, or that change. And, and students would behave differently in class depending on what they wore. And I say, well, that's just weird. But it, it, it does something to, to our perspective. And so Paul says, think about clothes, put off the old clothes, the dirty, stinking ones, but realize you are wearing new clothes. Put on the new self. And the end of verse 10. Huge, hugely important concept. Put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Let's play with some tenses here. Into verse 9. You've put off the old self. That's a, a verb that's in the past tense. This has happened. It's done. Verse 10. And have put on the new self. Again, it's in the past tense. This has happened and it's done. And Paul is referring here to the work of the cross where it was settled. When we believe in Jesus Christ, when we repent and call on His name, our old self is put off and our new self is put on. Make sense? Justification. But then read on in verse 10, which is being renewed. And the tense changes there to a present tense, but also an ongoing activity. And what what God's Word is saying is, We need to realize our position has changed. Our status has changed. We are sons and daughters of the King. But God is still renewing us daily and sanctifying us daily and making us more Christ-like daily. If we will allow Him to. He is the one doing the work, though. I love that last phrase, after the image of its Creator. That's the goal. That's what we're being transformed into. So we put off these two lists, but we put on the image of Christ more and more every day prayerfully. This comes back to setting our desire on things above in verse 1. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. We're being transformed into His likeness, into His image with ever-increasing glory every day. Today, I should be more like Christ than yesterday. Tomorrow, I pray that I will be more like Christ than today. But not by my power, but by the transforming work of, of God if I will open my heart to Him and say, search me and know my heart. Try me and know my way. I think also understanding that every one of us is made in the image of Creator speaks to the two lists. It speaks to the issue of sexual immorality because now I'm affecting another person that is created in the image of God that was not created to be my plaything but was created in the image of God. It affects my view of anger and how far I walk down the the path of anger Because now I am disparaging a child of God, someone in the image of God. And so Paul is saying, change your perspective. The old is dead. Put on the new. Let Christ renew you. We are all being transformed into the image of the Creator. He ends with verse 11, which comes back to the relationships, how we treat each other comes back to issues that were causing anger, that were causing strife. Here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised. And those two referred to to some of the division that was happening over religion and religious practices. Say, no, no, no. There's no Greek or Jew. There's no circumcised or uncircumcised. Then he deals with cultural distinctions, barbarians, Scythians, and barbarians... The, the Greeks defined a barbarian as anyone that didn't speak Greek. That's, that's how they defined it. And so you saw there were some cultural issues there. Someone comes into the church that doesn't, treat, that doesn't speak Greek. Oh, the barbarian. Now, now, hopefully no one called you a barbarian this morning. 
but it, but it referred to criticizing someone because of their culture, because of their background. And it was happening. Scythian was, was probably referred to as an extreme barbarian. Yet another people group from up north. And then finally, slave and free. Social. There was not, not to be a distinction there. Very interesting that Paul throws that in as he's sending the letter back with Onesimus, a slave that had run away from his master. We'll get to that when we study Philemon. But the last phrase, but Christ is all and in all. But Christ is all and in all. And Paul takes all of the division, all of the anger, all of these lists and comes back to saying, we are in Christ. Those that believe you're in Christ, I'm in Christ. And that spans the barriers that changes how we treat each other. Because now I'm to interact with you as a fellow heir of the kingdom of God. Challenging passage. I challenge you to look at those lists. What in your life do you need to put off that would lend itself to just fulfilling your own desires, living for yourself, greed that could lead to sexual immorality? Don't go today without thinking of that. And the second list, anger. If there is someone here, if there was someone outside that you're just struggling with and there's festering things, it's time to go to God and forgive and appropriate His forgiveness and write their name down. And that is not an easy process and we don't have time today to talk about that process. But it's time to start and say, God, You've told me to put it off. I choose to obey even if I don't know how or where to go with this. Because those things will only distract us from seeking heavenly things in the kingdom. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would step on my toes and every toe in here about some weeds that need to be pulled before you plant. Because Lord, we want to make disciples. We want to reproduce for your kingdom. But to do that, you need to till the soil and tear out the weeds. And so I pray, Lord, that you would search us, that you would know us and reveal to us areas we need to work on, God. That we can be your people ready to put on the new man to realize it's already been accomplished on the cross and allow you to use us for your work. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here dealing with impurity and sexual sins, that this would be a line in the sand, a marker that says it stops here because I'm dead to those things. Lord, I pray that if anyone here is struggling with anger and attitudes of resentment, that this would be a line in the sand to say that's the old man that is not of God. I put it away. Lord, change us as your congregation, as your people. In Jesus' name.